BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What a week. From the Kansas State Chiefs. I know they're in Missouri. Winning the Super Bowl to Rush Limbaugh earning, or at least receiving, the Medal of Honor to the historic impeachment vote and Mitt Romney's profile and courage, as well as Doug Jones's Profile and Courage, a New Hampshire debate, and today here on the Tom Hartman Program, I'm Jefferson Smith, honored to be with you. Thank you so much. Let us go to Paul Blumenthal. This is a reporter at the Huffington Post. He is joining us to talk about the impeachment, the broken system. His article, the link you can find that I can tweet out, is a broken system that acquitted Donald Trump. Mr. Blumenthal, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. What do we learn I think what we learned is that the system that we have set up, that the Constitution has set up for the impeachment of a president, the removal of a corrupt executive, just doesn't work anymore. It certainly doesn't work with the system of government as it's developed in our country over the many years. You know, the people who wrote the Constitution, the authors, thought of a system that needed to balance power between branches of government and not between partisan political parties. And right now we're living in a pretty 
high level of partisanship in our politics, one of the highest levels of partisan polarization that we've ever gone through. And certainly that is also an asymmetric polarization with the Republican Party. Do we need uh, another word since it's not to their poll? Because if it's since it's asymmetric and I know Ezra Klein and you know the vast majority of the punditry class uses the same word of polarization. Mm-hmm. But since it's not since they're not symmetric and it is asymmetrical, can we come up with another word other than polls since polls are a particular thing, right? <laughs> it's at one end of a poll, the other end of a poll. What's another well, word we might there's use? There's certainly one, you know, one of the political parties certainly does not want to abide by the rules and I guess the norms, as they say, of how politics has gone in the past in this country. And, you know, in some ways, it's clarifying to see this. You know, we have this sort of mythological thought process around Watergate and how, you know, the system is supposed to work to remove a president. And it turns out, you know, it doesn't actually work that way. So long as the president of the United States can marshal 34 members of his political party in the United States Senate, even if they represent, you know, a tiny minority of the population of the country, they can remain in power and do pretty much as they please. They can use congressionally approved funds to bribe a foreign country to help them win an election. And the thing that's different now, according to Steve Bannon, he said this what is making the Trump impeachment different is Fox News. What is making it different is the vast legions of talk radio that came that emerged thanks significantly to major financiers funding Rush Limbaugh in the wake of after well after what happened with Richard Nixon. And maybe I'm just annoying, but I want to stick to the polarization thing for a moment. This is a bee in my bonnet. Because yep. when somebody says, oh, they're so polarized, and then that suggests, oh, yeah, see, there's, it's sort of like Charlottesville. There's good people or bad people on both sides. When it seems to me that something different is happening, when MIT did its study of what Twitter followers and media organizations retweeted and didn't, it didn't show polls. What it showed was a particular uh, apparatus, a particular cluster of about 30% of the social media following that only looked at a handful and referenced a handful of sites and was not ecumenical. And it did not show, and there wasn't something equivalent on the other side. So that's why, to me, it's, you know, I hear polarization and I get triggered. But I'd ask you to respond to that. If you want to change the subject, let's change the subject. Well, I think, you know, what you said about Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, talk radio is highly relevant, especially related to Watergate, because, you know, Roger Ailes came up with this idea of a conservative media ecosystem specifically because he saw what happened to Richard Nixon and he thought that it was necessary to prevent any future Republican president from being uh, driven out of office, no matter what they did, was to create something like Fox News, and that's why he did it. That's why we see this happening, and I obviously can't disagree, and I write in my piece that, you know, what we're seeing is asymmetric. The Republican Party has moved very far out onto its poll. You know, I saw a a graphic today placing the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, along with European parties on a, a scale of left to right. And the Republican Party, you know, it's out there with alternative for democracy in Germany, you know, the far, far right neo-fascist parties. So this is certainly an asymmetric situation where Republican senators are rallying. You know, they just had a televised speech by President Trump thanking all of the Republican presidents for helping him stay in office, you know, not looking chastened as Susan Collins or Lamar Alexander claimed he would be. Yeah. And if, I mean, don't get me wrong, 
if there were a, a true counterweight to Fox News, I think the dynamic could happen otherwise. But one advantage that the right wing has is it's so much more monochromatic. It's so much more monotheistic. And it makes it easier for Rupert Murdoch to craft an audience that is coherent. Let me ask another question. Something I must acknowledge I didn't know was that Mitt Romney was the first U.S. senator to vote for, to actually cast a ballot, cast a vote for conviction mm-hmm. in an impeachment process in the United States history. Was that news to you, or did you always know that? I guess, you know, there have only been three impeachments of presidents in our history. And yeah. I guess the first impeachment is a little confusing here because Andrew Johnson, who was a Union Democrat, was named to the you know the ticket with Abraham Lincoln, who was a Republican, and then Lincoln assassinated Johnson comes into office, you know, he won on the Republican ticket, but his political party is the Union Democrats. The Democrats in the Senate at the time, there were not many, but they all voted to acquit him right. at the time. And then, you know, the Clinton era, none of the senators, none of the Democratic senators voted to convict him at the time. So Mitt Romney is, I guess, the only member of the political party of a president who has been impeached to vote to convict them. Yeah, it's interesting and, and helpful snapshot, helpful window to your snapshot in history. And of course, as you pointed out, Richard Nixon never got to a vote. There presumably were multiple yeah. Republicans that would have voted to convict Nixon. And that's why, in fact, he resigned. What should we do to hold presidents accountable? I've had that question by Twitter, by call in multiple times. What should we do? What should we change in our processes to be able to hold presidents accountable? Well, I don't know if I have an answer. It seems like the system that we have here for impeachment is now simply, you know, there's no such thing as censure in the Constitution, but it seems that impeaching a president and, you know, letting them stay in office acts as some form of censure on the president. And that just seems to be all that we have at the moment. You get the scarlet letter as distinct from the red badge of courage, and then hopefully that is remembered either by the person who succeeds you in running for office if you're term limited, or it is remembered by the people who have a chance to vote for your opponent. Paul Blumenthal from the HuffPost, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Merle in Seattle, Washington, lovely town. How you doing, Merle? <laughs> hey, what I wanted to say was to get perhaps a reflection by you on considering Biden and Buttigieg's ownership of some shadow whether we don't see an attempt by the Democratic establishment to uh, lower the momentum that Bernie would have carried forward to Tuesday's election. And then also, too, I want to give praise to our um, council person up here who's running, and some of our council people, the socialist council person up here, who are running as if a referendum was to occur when she got reelected in Bezos, that is Amazon, spent almost 400000 well, the Chamber of Commerce spent almost 400000 against her campaign. So she's looking at it as a referendum now to get an initiative to almost charge Amazon four times that amount for going towards affordable housing. And uh, we see a big need up here for a lot of affordable housing. It's No, it's a huge thing. This is a big story, what happened in Seattle. And what Amazon did, everybody should know about. And it really did remind me, uh, Merle, it really does remind me, you know, my retired friend from Twitter, who made the case and he said, Jeff, listen, you got to understand that Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Apple, Google, and Amazon are more powerful 
than Standard Oil and the railroads and U.S. Steel were at the turn of the last century. And what makes them even more powerful is they are directly involved in the conversation. The, they are the yes. filters. They are the filters through which the uh, journalists now will be filtered by. And one of the examples, so who is our, who is our updike, who is our writer who will tell the story of what's happening in Seattle, where you have just these vastly increased housing prices driven in significant part by these tech millionaires and, yeah, a couple tech billionaires. And then, mm-hmm. well, what is everybody else supposed to do? Well, what Amazon does is puts a, bunch, puts a bunch of money in so they can try to buy the city council and that put that in context as Citizens United. And that really is what's going on. That's a way bigger deal than what's happening in Democratic primary, of course. But that's, a, that's exactly what's going on. And I'm so glad you brought it up. Yeah. You know, we have your socialism going on here in the West, as well as uh, Bernie's and uh, AOC's. But but I do see that they're going to control the political spectrum unless we do such things as initiatives that actually counter the collapse that took place by uh, our council. And you beat uh, back uh, in in Seattle, you beat back the Amazon funded candidate, right? Yeah, that's what we uh, actually he he took on. uh, Yeah, a lot of that. endorsement and the money associated with it. Yeah. Um, although he said he wasn't taking any uh, at the earlier part of his campaign, yeah, he wasn't they, taking but, any of that. But the lesson to me but, is that that local, that local energy that fueled by activists, yeah. etc., was able to beat the Amazon funded candidate in the city of Seattle. One of the reasons I argue for this focus on local elections, etc., is there is a chance to beat the big money there when you have networks of relationships that include human networks of relationships. Uh, we will be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Thank you to you. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. Honored to be with you. Bill from Hendersonville, North Carolina. Just wanted to say I'm thankful for you, Jefferson. I listen to your conversations with the caller, and it helps me be a better communicator. That is about the highest compliment that I can receive. Whether I deserve it or not, I'll take it. I'll take it. Bill, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Anne from Miami, Florida. Go ahead. Hi there. I'm calling today because I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. And, you know, the Democrats just driving us. It took me years to register a Democrat, and it was Bernie that brought me into the party. That's not to say that I haven't worked for them for years, because I know they're the only game in town. Sure. But... The Democrats, they don't want to fight the Republicans. You know, they roll over on everything the Republicans want. But damn, you know, the progressives, they got to shut them down, you know. Uh, so I hear where you're coming from, and So first let me hear, but and then I want to agree, and then, but I also want to quibble. When you say they just lay down and don't fight against the Republicans, I want you to sort of give an example of that, that you really wish they were standing up in a way that was failing to use the power position they had. This goes back a long time ago. It's one of the reasons why I don't like Biden. Biden was head of the Judiciary Committee when Clarence Thomas was up. There was a woman who accused because he Clarence, let Clarence Thomas, Thomas get through. That's an example. Sure. Predator. Yeah. And, yeah, that's an example. Yeah. And here, and Biden, well, he saw a black dude. You know, okay, I understand. Anita Hill is the person I'm trying to think of. Ever since Clarence Thomas 
has come into the Supreme Court. He has voted against unions. He has voted against minorities. He has voted against women. What goes on? In the interest of compromise, you had a credit card bill in the mid-1990s where they put child support, and they compromised on that. Child support was, was a lower priority than, uh, it was a bankruptcy bill, I'm sorry. It, it was a lower priority than credit card debt. This is the kind of thing yeah, that's that drives one of the, me that, nuts. That's one of the you know, things that got... They don't want to understand. Yeah. And I understand there's only so much you can do. And I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. When they, but when they pull this kind of crap... All right, and I want to I want to make sure we get to another call. I've heard your point very and and really okay, appreciate no it. No problem, but that's where I'm at. All right, All right thanks, thank Ann. you. Date night, Valentine's Day. Uh oh, and you're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in a few minutes, and you look in the mirror and oh, look at those wrinkles and large under eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's my secret weapon? And there it is, Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under eye bags and wrinkles disappear right in front of your eyes. You look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in just minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having, to that extent, practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. It's from his first inaugural speech, explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott. From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use. And those regulations are allowed or disallowed, ultimately, by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also, whether there can be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting, or sometimes persecuting, individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of, it decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. Meanwhile, America has ended up, mostly since around 1980,
with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, quote, about 75% of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra-wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67% support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband, and more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada, and 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, end quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in parts one and two, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, a process called judicial review. This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review, and how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the Court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the Court sided with popular opinion, and how have people successfully challenged the Court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the court to have this much power. Thomas Jefferson was among them. Part one of this book dives into the philosophies that guided the men who drafted the Constitution. It also shows how in 1803, the Supreme Court set itself above Congress and the president with the power to review, strike down, or rewrite laws based on its own lone interpretation of the Constitution. Importantly, the framers of the Constitution gave no consideration to the rights of nature or even of the environment, other than its sheer productive potential to enhance the wealth of the nation. Instead of the environment, when the Constitution was written in the summer and fall of 1787, the new thing in political circles was the idea of property rights for commoners, which had only clearly been articulated outside of the realm of royal prerogatives during the previous few centuries. John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America by Tom Harbin.
Welcome back, everybody. This is Jefferson Smith on the Tom Hartman program. Thanks for being with us. I'm going to go to Joe from X-Ray, and I think I know who this is. You're on the air. <laughs> well, good. That's my and dad. I have, I have two thank yous, but first I just have to make a brief comment on Iowa. I submit that the candidates, at least the four candidates, the four leading candidates, should be grateful for what happened in Iowa, because instead of getting one big news late Monday night and then something on Tuesday morning, and that was it. They've had three days of solid news with their names being up there all the time, creating name familiarity and interest. The only loser is Iowa. And Iowa's clearly a loser, but the candidates should be grateful. Everybody, even Amy Klobuchar got to give, because she came out first, right? And she got to give something that wasn't a victory speech, but didn't have to be a concession speech, as very often happens. So people exactly. didn't get a, a, a big momentum. And she got national hit. television to do it. Right. So, all right, That's Pop. That's a big thank you. All but right. the two thank yous I want to give, well, people are going to laugh at the first one, but I really mean it. I want to thank you to the faculty and the administration at Franklin High School in Portland, Oregon, for allowing me to say thank you to Archie. Have you heard of Archie? I have heard of Archie. Archie this is a therapy is a dog, right? Doodle dog. Yeah. And it turns out that Archie apparently has an actual sense for people who are in mental distress. And he has the ability, he will go up and lay his head on their lap, he will go up and lick their hand, he'll go up and rub against their leg, and has the capacity to significantly reduce people's feeling of mental stress. He does it for students, he does it for faculty. Archie's a good boy. And the fact that the administration has allowed that to happen, we should say thank you to all of them. All right. And the other thank you, I want to thank you, say thank you to my son, Jefferson Smith, for nice. being my son. I got a shill. All the good I things. got a shill. He's a plant. Go ahead, Pop. All, no, no, this is, this is entirely spontaneous by me. For all that you do and all that you have done and all that I'm sure you will do, and I'm just really grateful. Love you, Pop. That was sweet. If you want to hear more of my dad, he and I actually, this, this actually now will be a, sh- it's not shameless. I feel shame, but it is a plug uh, that we do a show back at home called, you can get it on the, on the interwebs, uh, called News of My Dad, where you can hear more of my dad's brilliance. And more times when he says, I have one gratitude thing to say, and then offers three important thoughts. I love you, Pop. Thank you so much for calling. It means a lot. And make sure people understand that anywhere in the world... At 7.30 in the morning on Monday and 7.30 in the morning on Thursday, Pacific time, go to xray.fm, punch the big arrow, and there we are. All right. Well, I hope people will put up with that. Now we'll get back to their calls. Thank you so much. Robin, Free Speech TV, Kingston, Washington. Go ahead. Hi, Jefferson. My group, my homies, the 60, 70, 80, 90-year-olds, stepping up and doing more in 2020 to change government forward than they ever have done in their lives. And there are several steps. The first is the most important to accomplish this. The most difficult thing that I get, I have when I deal with my group is to get most to acknowledge that it was on our watch that the majority of this demise took place. Mm -hmm. That's a hard barrier to get through. If you do, then you have to decide to do something about it. That's step two. 
it's not too late. Step three, just have to connect with one non-voter to get them to vote in 2020. Step four, organize locally with groups that you have not yet organized with. Step five, the most important one to save your own sanity. Do not argue with Trumpsters. Have conversations, informational conversations with the Indies, the people who don't register as Republican or don't register as Democrat, people who are in the middle. And I will say, frankly, I called in 2016, the summer I talked to Tom, and I said, Trump is going to win because I'm a person of the street, go to meetings, I'm out there all the time. Trump is going to win, and you're going to be shocked at the number of women who will vote for Donald Trump. So that was a prognostication. Yeah. Here is my prognostication for 2020. If my group, the 60, 70, 80, 90-year-olds, do not change just a little bit in 2020, Trump will win again. But if they do change and they do step up and say, okay, this is not okay with me, and I'm kicking in my great-grandparent and my grandparenting, my, my parenting instincts, and I am going to parent my country forward, we will win. Thank Robin, you very much, Jefferson. Robin, thank you so much, and thanks for being such a loyal time listener and participant in this okay. community and one of the people that helped build this community. Robin went away. The question I wanted to ask, Robin, was that I guess I'll just put out to you, is that knowing that at least in the entrance polls, Bernie Sanders had huge support among young people, 18 to 29. I started out by organizing young people in democracy. It's something I still care an awful lot about. But among voters 65 and older, in the entrance polls, Bernie was at 4%. And for and I know we have legions of Bernie supporters that are critical supporters of this program. And I and I do want to hear the uh, the response to that. What, what are plans? What are thoughts? How they think that impacts the primary going forward? How that might impact the general, given uh, Robin's thoughts? Uh, let's go to Steve, though, from Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Jefferson. It was really nice uh, of your dad to go on. He sounds like a nice, really nice uh, older gentleman He's the and best. all that. That's terrific. You know, and your dog yesterday, too. That was nice having him on. My wife enjoyed seeing that. I recorded that. <laughs> My dog's you here know, again today. I'm not making uh, quite as much of a show of him right now, but yeah, go on. Okay, yeah, I hear you. You know, in a week where we saw democracy on trial, you know, down here in Arizona, where we're trying to get this state to be a little more blue, we passed a $12 an hour minimum wage back in 2016, and it's been implemented incrementally in stages. And as of this uh, January 1st, we're now at 12 bucks an hour. So that's, that's one really good thing. We've got, you know, Mark Kelly, the astronaut, the husband of Gabby Giffords, who was shot in AZ, you know, right. former congressman. He's running in, uh, in 2020 along with Amy McGrath in Kentucky and Sarah Gideon in Maine. And these folks, we got, these are some winnable seats. And I just hope all the, the folks out there can just toss a few bones to, to some of these candidates and stuff. And, and also, don't forget about Doug, uh, Mr. Courageous Jones down in Alabama. He did a wonderful thing. If we go four for four on those four seats, we go four for, which is a tough thing to do, to be clear. Go four for four in those t in those tough seats. There will be a Democratic Senate. 
It would be fantastic. You know, Jefferson, and I'm in my 60s, and I'm a, I'm a huge Bernie supporter. Sure. And, in fact, I encouraged him to run, you know, back when Tom was having him on Fridays and stuff. Right. And it seems to me it's totally counterintuitive that he has 4% support in the oldest group in the nation. You know, he's fought for veterans yeah. and the older people and Social Security. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think the quickest explanation I would offer, I don't pretend to be the world's expert, is that he is pushing for major, major change. And for a generation, for an older generation, that major, major change can, might feel more disruptive. Also, younger voters have seen, I mean, the Harper's Index just put out the wealth comparison between younger Americans and older Americans. And younger Americans have gotten pretty screwed, and Bernie Sanders speaks to them. But, Steve, thank you so much for activism and for calling in. Yeah, take care. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Tom Hartman here. My new book, The War on Voting, it should be titled The Republican War on Voting, which is what it really is, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is on the verge of being out or is out in bookstores near you and online. It is the third in the series, the Hidden History series. The first was Guns in the Second Amendment. The second was The Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. We're doing a book tour on the voting book here. Uh, Saturday, February 15th, I'll be in Los Angeles at the Sportsman's Lodge at 1 p.m. More information at kpfk.org. On Monday, February 17th, in San Francisco, at the, or in Berkeley, actually, at the Arts and Letters series, series at 7.30 p.m. On Wednesday, February 19th, I'll be in Seattle at Town Hall, 7.30 p.m. Sunday, February 23rd, in Minneapolis, the Blue State Ball at 1 p.m. Friday, the 28th of February, in Portland at Powell's on Burnside, and Sunday in Chicago on March 1st. You can check it all out at TomHartman.com. All the information is there. We're on Free Speech TV from Cindy. Watching on Free Speech TV. Hello, Cindy. Good morning, Jefferson. I'm calling to encourage all your listeners and viewers to be sure to watch Democracy Now! from this morning. Amy Goodman interviews uh, journalist William Arkin on his article appearing in the Federation of American Scientists, and it's titled, Scarily, U.S. Deploys New Low-Yield Nuclear Submarine Warhead. And that's just some pretty scary stuff, and there has been, like, no coverage I've seen on the corporate media. Yeah, thank you for that, and thank you for the plug for Amy's show, uh, the Democracy Now! show. You can find uh, lots of places, lots of times. And thanks, Cindy, for calling. And it is one of the one of the places that is undercovered is how we, and I actually want there to be within embedded within the Republican Party more fiscal watchdogs there. At the state level, what we see is all too often Republican fiscal watchdogs call themselves fiscal watchdogs if Democrats are in charge, but then don't watch prison budgets, don't watch public safety budgets. They'll watch all the other budgets. They'll criticize education budgets, health care budgets, et cetera, uh, but not public safety budgets. It's the same thing in the federal government, that the, uh, the military budget ends up feeling sacrosanct. And watching what is happening is Hugely important. Appreciate you calling. I won't belabor it further. Richard from KBCS in Bellevue, Washington. Hello there. Good morning, Jefferson. Oh. Uh, it's another happy day in Trumpistan. <laughs> 
<laughs> glad you're happy. <laughs> Got to be happy one way or another, or we're not going to get it done. I'm calling to express my fear about what I'm thinking about is the impending doom of a re reinauguration of Donald Trump in Jan next January. Yeah, and, real concern. Uh, the deal there, though, is that Republican juggernaut only needs him for that long, and after that, they have they have their pieces in place to be able to do what they need to do for whatever the next four years are that he would have been reelected for. And so I, I'm feeling that he's not gonna he's not gonna go ahead and stick it out for another term. I think I think he's going to resign for health reasons, and I think he's going to sue our country. Yeah, I'm not in a good position to evaluate either of those conjectures. Thank you, Richard, for the call. I can respond to the first one, that I do think that there is a meaningful risk of Trump's reelection. Anybody who thinks that the choice of the Democratic nominee, that whoever is nominated, well, it's just a fait accompli that they're going to win, it's going to be a hard deal. Historically, when there, when unemployment is low, when the stock market is high, I mean, this is why Newt Gingrich was saying three years ago why they needed to do the kind of stimulus that Republicans like to do. When Democrats win, that's the kind of stimulus they like to do tends to be more like infrastructure, more like bottom-up stimulus, not as, as, as strongly as some people in our community might like, but that tends to be the thrust. When Republicans uh, are wanting to do stimulus, they tend to do it by giving tax cuts and tax breaks at the upper, upper income levels. The uh, And he was making the case, well, if we do that, then Donald Trump can get reelected because if there's a decent economy, a strong economy, presidents get reelected. Uh, I think that there is a meaningful concern that'll do that. And if he does that, they get more courts that last for long you know, lifetimes. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Tom Hartman's show. One of the questions that has come up it is we are reminded by Iowa we were reminded certainly during 2016, it started becoming more in the common awareness in 2000 in the wake of the Florida election, if we can call it that, is election securities. How do we ensure that our elections are, in fact, sanctified, sacrosanct and safe? We have on the line a guest who is going to talk to us about that, who had Ms. Kornblatt, who's an expert in the field. Please tell us, give yourself an introduction on how brilliant you are on the subject. And then what do we do to ensure our safe elections? Karen Kornblue, I really appreciate being on. Thanks so much. I'm at the Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative yep. that's in Washington, D.C. And uh, before this, I had been an ambassador uh, for Obama to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is the economic standard setting organization, and also worked for him as his policy director in the Senate and wrote the 2008 Democratic Party platform um, and uh, have been growing increasingly concerned as somebody who worked on Internet policy going way back to the Clinton administration yeah. about how uh, the whole online environment has contributed mightily, in addition to what goes on in TV with Fox and Sinclair and so on. But the online environment has really corrupted our, our media e ecosystem. And we saw going into Iowa and then after Iowa what that can do in terms of making people really doubt um, the information they need as they go into the voting poll, and then also the legitimacy of an election. 
What are the vote systems that you're most concerned about? Are you actually concerned more about what's happening at the ballot, at the vote counting, or at this point, most of your focus on kind of the voter psychology, the manipulation that happens upon that with bots, et cetera? Um, your focus? All of the above? Yeah. All of the above. Um, so I have a sister organization here that more works on the actual security of the voter systems, and there are a bunch of organizations working on that. I think people are, are very nervous because of exactly what you saw uh, in Iowa and then also what we're learning belatedly was going on in 2016 with uh, voter rolls, with the election security systems themselves. There's a lot of danger for what will happen at the voting booth, which is to say nothing of even before that, the purging of the voter rolls and the um, voter suppression. Yeah. Uh, and then in addition, I and I think we're all worried about all of that, and there are a lot of groups working on trying to help address all of that since, you know, we aren't addressing it at the federal level, unfortunately. But then I think there's a big worry about um, just how people understand what's happening and what the candidates are about and you know, just like authoritarians in so let's start China and Russia hurt things and flood the media ecosystem, we're seeing that happening here. So let's start there. Let's start with the psyops. Let's start with the manipulation mm-hmm. of minds and mm-hmm. Twitter feeds and Facebook posts. Yeah. I remember I'm forgetting her name. There was somebody who used to show up in my feed all the time back in the 2016 election. She was a strong Bernie Sanders supporter. She would spend most of her time whacking Hillary Clinton and in a scantily clad T-shirt. And then after the primary, she started showing my feed less. And then I showed up my feed some and she was a Trump supporter. And I learned later that, in yeah. fact, she was on the payroll of the Russian government. And and I realized, oh, geez, that stuff was actually going down. There, there really were uh, operatives being paid for by the Russian government to impact our elections. What are the uh, what is the manipulation that we should be watchful for? What advice do you give either what's happening at, at kind of your level? Uh, former ambassadors yeah. working on this and sort of a fancy person. And then what are people doing? Should we doing at sort of my level? Uh, you know, when I'm just like reading Twitter and what should I do? Yeah, great questions, uh, um, but I'll contest that I'm a fancy person. But, um, <laughs> so, you know, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which says how close we are to doomsday, they put out a new clock where they said we're 100 seconds to doomsday, which is the closest we've been. And the first thing they cited was disinformation. Yeah. Because they said what happens with disinformation is it undermines democracy, it hurts our trust in each other and in institutions, and we're not able to deal with existential threats like nuclear war, like climate. So it's a big, big problem. And uh, we were too late to realize the Russian problem. And now I think we're going to be, we've been too late. We need to catch up fast to realize that a lot of it is not, is coming from in the house right now. The call is coming from in the house. So it's domestic disinformation, not state run, obviously, but very close to the state. And also that it's not all ads anymore, that now instead of paying Facebook to run a micro-targeted ad, you can also have uh, buy a network through a PR firm that will push bots or get a network of people, trolls like you had, to bombard either the news cycle or other individuals. So it's more off the shelf. You're paying third parties and it looks more convincing than an ad, you know. And what's happened is the, the truth, you know, the signal that you want to listen for to understand what the truth is, the news media has been completely undermined yeah. because all the revenue, you know, that used to go to your local paper 
from the Sunday Circular, well, that now all that ad money now goes to the platforms. Yep. And then when you go online to try to read your paper, if they still exist, if they still have the money to stay in business, all these fake sites that a reporter for the Atlantic just called Potemkin news sites, because they look like they're news sites, but they're really content mills that are just to promote a candidate or to undermine a party are on there looking exactly like reputable papers. So that's the big problem. But I can I can tell you more about what we can do about it. That'd be great. Would you stick with us? We've got a break now, but if you, can you come back with yeah. us to be with us? Wonderful. Ambassador Karen Kornbluh, Senior Fellow and Director of Digital Innovation Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Something that a pro-democracy supermajority ought to care a lot about, something around which we should have a consensus commitment, is the security of our elections, making sure that when we cast a ballot, that ballot gets cast and counted, making sure that the discussion that leads up to the casting of that ballot is, in fact, not manipulated unduly. Helping us think that through is Ambassador Karen Kornbluh. She is an expert on election security. And Karen, I got notes in. I got at least one note in that says, this Karen person is so depressing. Maybe I just shouldn't vote. There's no hope. There, everything's oh, no. just rigged. I got no, we're all doomed. Ambassador, what do we do about it? That, you know, that's exactly the way that the opponents of democracy want you to feel. And that's what, you know, Putin does, and that's what the Chinese do, what the Chinese government does, is they flood the information space. They're not trying to convince you, trying to convince the average citizen that their version of truth is right, because they couldn't possibly. They're just trying to confuse you and make you think there's no point, that no one agrees with you. And that it's hopeless. As you said, there's a super majority of people who support democracy, who support having the truth out there. And so I think it's really important to be aware of the media soup that we're swimming in and to help clean it up. How do we clean it Um, up? Yeah. So from a policy point of view, you know, we let a whole bunch of laws get outdated. They work on the offline world to some extent, but they haven't been updated for the online world. What do I mean? consumer protection. You know, you're constantly being tricked online. Civil rights, a whole bunch of civil rights laws don't apply online. Some of this voter suppression you were talking about, I would put under there. Public accommodation laws, like people are harassed and driven off 
line because so much of the disinformation focuses on vulnerable communities. And campaign finance, I mean, as you all know, I'm sure all your listeners know, Citizens United was a terrible decision, but it's made even worse by the lack of transparency online. So that's subverted even the deal that was supposed to be part of that. The fact that the news media, local news media, has been totally undermined, and the fact that the platforms aren't accountable. So there's a bunch of stuff we can do. We can update those laws. We should tax online advertising to pay for a new PBS of the Internet that supports public interest local journalism. And we need to have more accountability. Citizens, what they need to do is just like offline you need to organize, online you need to organize both. It's all one and the same. So on the far right, what they've done is they fire with each other, they pick memes, they push them out, they build up their influencers. We need to understand what they're doing, and people who support democracy need to understand how to do that kind of Saul Linsky-type offline organizing work online, but it has to be both. You know, it has to be person-to-person offline as well as online. It has and you, to want human communi- you want human communication, because then you know that person's a real person. Exactly, exactly. And so we need to have some kind of verification so you know it's a real person. It's not that kind of bot that you thought. So, you know, in the last election, y- you had a troll or a bot that was trying to influence you. Well, there was a site, Blacktivist, on Facebook that had more followers than the Black Lives Matter website, and it gave people wrong information. So we need to make sure that the groups that we join that the managers are real. Yeah, and sometimes I can tell. Sometimes I can tell if it's like if it's like an egg. I think maybe I can tell if they've got if they follow a thousand people, but they have four followers. Sometimes I can tell. Like if they're brand new, you know, sort of bots, I can tell. But sometimes the bots are sophisticated. Sometimes they have good profiles. Sometimes they're people who I know and respect who follow them, retweet their stuff, and it can be hard. Are there best sources? And is anybody doing a really good job at identifying who are more likely bots? Anybody we should be following? To watch this stuff? You know, there are a bunch of experts that are in different areas. So like the anti-vax disinformation that's out there, somebody that's really good to follow is Renee Resta. She's been doing a lot of good work on that. Obviously the CDC, but I mean in terms of the online misinformation. And there are a bunch of different... Hamilton 68, which comes out of the German Marshall Fund, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, looks at how what the Russians are up to and what their major sites are, are promoting. Yep. So there are a bunch of, of different sites, but we almost need, like, community watch. Yeah. You know, we need to really be responsible before we share something. And what's unfortunate about the online environment is they make it so easy to be tricked by disinformation and for you to share it. Yeah, so easy to sp- I, it's so easy for me it. to sp- to spread the virus, right? As long if I they could just exactly. they trigger me right. If they can get me, oh yeah, that's one of my hot buttons. They got my hot button. Heck yes, click like, click share, and then all of a sudden I've used my whatever credibility I might have to convince somebody else. It's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. Is they they spend your credibility, and so we all need to realize that we're all influencers. And we need to be, we need to fight against the urge, just like you might fight against eating that cupcake in the office. You need to fight against the urge to share it until you've checked it out because you're an influencer and you really have to be, be super careful. And then we need to build up trusted networks. And that's really like community organizing. And we've, we've, you know, and then we need to put pressure on the platforms to be much more transparent, much more responsible, create some friction so it's not so easy to, share the bad stuff, some more user interface so we know what we're seeing. You know, it's really like one of the buyer beware 
kind of environment. And so we all need to become much more individually yeah, um, and, and to help others do it, that's one of, the re- one of the things I try to do now, I'm trying to get in the habit of, is if I end up on some thread or I see it, I just try to say, hey, do we have a second source for that? Say, hey, is that is that short? In fact, many of my, I've talked about this before, but many of my, my now deceased uncle, uh, who was a hero of mine, uh, would send me stuff. Much of our political dis- discourse back and forth on email was me doing research he probably should have done to help him understand that something he was spreading or asking, at least I gave, I appreciated he would ask me about it. Uh, that that was, in fact, a trumped-up deal. And I hugely appreciate it, Karen. Anything I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I just I just think that this last point is really important, that we think that media education has to happen to the young. I think the young are a little bit more savvy. It's the older people who are, I think, more credulous. And so we have to help our parents, our aunts and uncles, uh, really understand this and think before sharing. Karen Cornblue, Senior Fellow and Director of the Digital Innovation and Democracy. Thank you so much. Democracy is the struggle. Thank you. Appreciate it. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. This is from the introduction titled In Putin's Footsteps. On New Year's Eve 1999, journalists in the Russian president's press pool had a feeling that things were going to change. They were right. The feeble and aging Boris Yeltsin, who could barely board a plane or stand for a 15-minute press conference, was about to deliver his end-of-the-year address in which he resigned and ceded power to his prime minister and hand-picked successor, Vladimir Putin. Once head of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, the post-communist democratic version of the dreaded KGB, Putin was indeed an unusual choice, having served as the head of the government for only a few months. But the 48-year-old ex-spy, who had become the youngest Kremlin leader since the Soviet Union's founders, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, had a quiet energy that seemed boundless, as boundless as the geographic expanses contained within Russia's 11, yes, 11 time zones. After taking over from Yeltsin as acting president on the first day of the new millennium, and after winning by a landslide presidential elections three months later, Putin, in the year to come, held over a dozen press conferences and traveled to almost two dozen countries and at least a quarter of Russia's 89 regions, which are spread out over 11 time zones. Altogether, he was seen in public and on television more often than Yeltsin during most of his eight-year presidency. Suddenly, the press had something to report. The news stories were no longer those of Yeltsin's Russia, which was perceived both at home and abroad as weak, insignificant, and a corrupt boogeyman reeling from his Cold War defeat. These were stories of an enigmatic young technocrat tirelessly crisscrossing the country and meeting with workers, farmers, and cultural figures, attending theater galas and factory openings. All that uplifting travel, Russia was starving for the Kremlin's attention, connected Putin to ordinary people and gave him the idea of delivering a rousing New Year's Eve televised address to the nation. Standing before the Kremlin's Spassky Tower just before the giant bells rang in the year 2001, under starry winter skies in front of a large, snow-dusted Christmas tree, he pledged to counter the negativity of the post-Soviet decade and set the country on a new positive course. And this he did. In his address, the ardent young leader looked both charming and in charge when he spoke of Russia's great future, heroic past, and enduring spirit. Putin had often appeared a reserved technocrat, but soon he would demonstrate a talent for finding opportunities to impress the heartland. He knew the best way to get to people's hearts, showing them that his priority was returning Russia to the world stage as a major power of formidable dimensions. 
Originally, he had an even bolder plan for his New Year's address, and he'd run it by journalists in his press pool during one of his trips around Russia. Without a hint of doubt in his voice, Putin told them that, quote, Russia is an enormous country, a great country. We need to remember that our strength is our size. What if I were to travel through Russia's limitless land in one night through all of its 11 time zones, stopping in each one at midnight local time to record a New Year's message to show our nation's greatness, our richness, the diversity of our mother Russia, our unity and our worth? Even though Russia's time zones are exaggerated in number, there should be only seven, according to generally accepted geographic markers of Greenwich Mean Time. It's a 24-hour cycle, also called UTC. Maintaining them is not only a political matter, it is reflective of the national identity, state power, and international influence. Russia has 11 time zones more than any other country, and that, as Russians would have it, bespeaks its status in a way no one can deny. Putin hoped to begin restoring his country's grandeur, once czarist, then Soviet, and now Russian. The idea was bold and beautiful, but unfortunately, unrealizable. The book In Putin's Footsteps by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. It's time for the Big Big Finish. We're going to do a speed round. If everybody cooperates, we can get to everybody, but it's got to be a speed round. Let's go to Ray from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Go ahead. Great. I want to say I am so grateful for the amount of publishing information and progressive media that is available. But even though I followed all those things, I was just amazed and so grateful for the House managers in the impeachment trial. I thought they were so eloquent and just made a beautiful case to the American public. And for you, Jefferson, I love the way you let people talk, but for this show, I wish you had stepped on a few more toes and kept people on topic. I was really looking forward <laughs> to this grateful day. So keep moving. All right, Ray, thanks a lot. Donald from Aurora, Aurora Illinois. Yes, hi, Jeff. My thing is is about Bernie Sanders. I voted for him in the primary when, when he was running against Hillary Clinton, and it didn't pan out. But the truth of the matter is, is this. He better not touch Social Security and Medicare. I don't, the, the Medicare for Senior Social Security. If I didn't have that, I would have lost everything. And no. I have a funny thing that he has. He's up to that. I don't trust to, him. To be, to be clear, the right-wing apparatus, if they want to get to where they've been wanting to go for decades in shrinking the size overall of the federal budget, they have, they're not going to do it with the military. They have to do it with uh, Social Security and Medicare. They have to. There's no, there isn't, oh, I wonder if they will. They have to. It's only a matter of time. If they're given enough time in power, they have to, because you can't do the arithmetic otherwise. The 80 percent, 75% of the federal budget, this is useful. I'll do it in speed round fashion. 75, give or take, percent of the federal budget goes the following five things. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, service on the national debt, and the U.S. military. That's the federal budget. If you don't, if you're not talking about cutting those things, and by the way, advancing the debt does not uh, does not reduce the service on the debt. If you're not doing some of those five things, you're not cutting the budget. They have to go to after Medicare and Social Security if they're going to have their way. Bill from Sun City, go ahead. In my heart, I know this: whatever they take away, whatever they do, when we take back control, we're going to get it all back in triplicate. Bill, I appreciate the optimism. Thank you so much for calling. Mark from Woodstock here on Speed Round. Hey, Jeff. I'm thankful for the people who work with people with developmental disabilities and take care of them like autism, like my daughter is a woman with severe autism, and the people that work with her are doing amazing life and death work every single day, and they're really making slave wages, working two jobs, and um, that's what I'd like to say. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for calling. I'll join in that gratitude. Sam from Canton. 
Yes, the thing that I'm the most grateful for is the phenomenon of hitting bottom. You see, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and on Easter Sunday, 1992, I realized that drinking a liter of rum every 24 hours made me an alcoholic. So I got on my knees and I prayed for the Creator to take the desire for alcohol away from me. It is hitting bottom. You have to admit that there's a problem before you can seek the solution. I'm praying that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans realize that they they are wrong in what they're doing and that they change their ways. Thank you so much, Sam. And I am grateful at Opportunities for Redemption. Carol from Seattle, Washington, go ahead. Hello, Jefferson. Uh, Yeah, I'm thankful for, I walked right into an impromptu rally at West Seattle, people chanting, vote blue no matter who, and pouring rain, dark, cars honking, everybody excited, and also the, the verdict had just come down about the impeachment. So it was a moment. Thank you for sharing that moment, Carol. Appreciate it. And I know how it can rain in Seattle. Kathy from Winchester, I think you're pro Trump. Go ahead. Hi. I was just wondering, I'm watching a show and I don't see any pro-Trump people calling in. So I just wanted to say, I think he's doing an excellent job with the economy, with especially the um, tariffs with China. He's doing everything that he said he would do. You know what I mean? Actually, he's doing like 85% of what he said he was going to do. Another thing I want to talk about well, is... No, it's, one, always, it's, one thing, it's one thing for a person. We're just about at the very end of the show. Let me just ask yeah. this. Are you concerned about climate change or wealth disparities? Are those two things you're concerned about or those are not priorities for you? Okay. Um, if you look up Agenda 21, you will understand why they're doing this thing about climate change. So you don't think I it's think real. that the Earth goes through something. Okay. It, it always does. We've had an ice age. It has- we, we're about to end the show, Kathy. I appreciate you calling, but I want to make sure we get to Liz before we wrap from Detroit, Michigan. Hey, Tom um, Jefferson. Tom Women's Jefferson was the third the- president of the United States. It's a high compliment. Go ahead. That's right. We're wearing white in the tradition of women's suffrage, when you saw the Congresswomen wearing winter white. Yep. Um, I'm a snowbird in Arizona, and we're celebrating women's suffrage on February 13th. It's legislative day at the state capitol, and uh, we meet with our legislators, and I'm grateful that women can vote. So am I. Thank you, Liz, for calling and reminding us so much. Gordon from Naperville, Illinois. Hey, I I just want to say I'm thankful for Howard Dean and the 50-state strategy. That's something, I mean, it was a while ago, but that's something that really started from the ground up, helped build the groundswell that turned a whole lot of red places, either solidly purple or even blue, and it's still out there working. We need to bring that back. Thank you so much, Gordon. And I think that is a good place to wrap for today. Thank you, everybody, for filling up the lines today for calling. We got through. We cleared the board and then added some more people and cleared most of them, too. So appreciate you calling. Appreciate you sharing your gratitude. And the 50-state strategy is a good place to stop. It's a good place to finish on and to reflect. Because the idea there was that presidential election is not the only election. That our favorite candidate in the primary is not the only question we face the country. And where each of us might have our most impact might be closer to your living room than you think. It might be in the next town over, maybe even in your town. It might be a candidate. It might, might not be a candidate. Let's do all the good we can with all the time we have. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. You 
been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.